Hi, how are you doing? I'm sitting on a shingle beach in the hot sun and in front of me is the greyish expanse of the North Sea. Beside me on the shingle is my dog Scout with whom I've been reunited after four months and I brought her to the beach because it's about the most exciting thing in the world for her. And she's singing gently with impatience because all she wants to do is race off at top speed into the sea. My name's Melissa Harrison and I'm a novelist and nature writer who lives in rural Suffolk. Scout, sit. Good girl. Through summer and into autumn, I'm going to help you keep in touch with the natural world and the changing seasons. Welcome to episode 15 of The Stubborn Light of Things. Go on then. back from the water's edge because Scout was losing her mind at the excitement of all the water. She's still losing her mind a bit, actually, just the idea of being at the beach. Um, and there's a, a strip of um, vegetation growing on the shingle. And it's amazing. It, there are um, yellow horned poppies and sea kale and something that looks like bladycampium, but it's growing very low and thistles and all sorts of... Um, all sorts of plants I don't recognise that are colonising the shingle. And in the distance is Sizewell Power Station looming big and blocky and grey. I could make a whole podcast about Scout, um, and uh, I don't think that would be a good idea, but I will tell you a little bit about her. She is either 12 or 13. She's a rescue dog. We've had her since she was very young. My husband and I adopted her when... She was probably about six months old, and she had been living as a stray in Ireland. She is black and white. She's about the size of a female collie, but she's got very short, close fur. And she is um, very clever, very mischievous, very independent. She's her own dog. She's got all sorts of her own thoughts and plans and ideas about things. Um, she likes to work at distance, which is a dog training euphemism. She's got a high prey drive, so she tends to run off after small furry things um, because she's part terrier. She's a terrier Australian Shepherd Cross. You wouldn't know in a million years how old she is. It's, it's impossible to tell. She's, um, she's fit and fast and strong. And I like to think that she's a feminist. She takes absolutely no crap from boy dogs. And she cocks her leg to wee. <laughs> she doesn't, she's not a woofer. Um, she doesn't woof to communicate with humans. The only time she ever did that with us was in the middle of the night 
uh, one night uh, when she came into the bedroom and did a very small woof. And we sent her back to bed thinking there might be a fox in the garden. And it turned out the shed was being burgled. So we felt very bad because she did try and tell us. But she doesn't woof. What she does do, though, when she's feeling impatient right now, is she sings. Scout, sit. Sit. Good girl. At the moment, she really wants to run madly into the sea. So I'm going to let her off. But before I do that, let me introduce you to this week's guest. It's Lev Perikian, whose new book is Into the Tangled Bank, and it came out just a few days ago. Most nature writing um, is quite po-faced, quite serious, but not Lev's. This book is accessible, and it's funny, and it's about people and nature, um, and I think that's really vital these days. Our relationship with nature at the moment is, is what, what, needs, what needs attention, what needs fixing. And in it, if you need any other further persuasion to read it, in it he visits Selborne, um, home of Gilbert White. Lev and I met via a charity called Nature Vibes, who um, were clearing up bits of wood in South London, scraps of the old north wood, which used to cover vast swathes of, of, of the country. Um, and they were cleaning it up so it could be used by local forest schools and underprivileged children. Um, and his book uh, begins with the phrase which I think is just very apt for this podcast. I'm lying, as you do, on the pavement. There's a passage in Through the Looking Glass. Alice finds herself sitting under a tree talking to a gnat the size of a chicken. What's the use of their having names, the gnat said, if they won't answer to them? No use to them, said Alice, but it's useful to the people that name them, I suppose. If not, why do they have names at all? I'm fascinated by the names of things, how they got them and why. Birds are my great love, and their names are often part of the charm. Things like Cuckoo, Kittywake and Chiffchaff, all taken from the sounds they make, or names like Wagtail, Woodpecker and Flycatcher, taken from what they do and others like Potchard, Dotterall and Twight, whose origins are more obscure, but which have a certain ring to them. String those three together and they sound like a firm of solicitors. Then there are the old regional folk names. The Mistlethrush, for example, is known variously as Stormcock, Big Felt, Corny Kiever, Holmes Screech, Misley Dick, and my absolute favourite, Big Mavis. Even richer is the wealth of moth names, a wonderful catalogue of invention and colour. Buff arches, festoon, crimson speckled footman, flounced rustic, beautiful snout, argent and sable. Not everyone sets such store by names, of course. It's perfectly possible to enjoy the sight and sound of the bird singing at the top of the tree without knowing it's a blackbird perched on an oak. And if someone uses scientific names, it can be excluding. You might feel like you're looking in on a club you're not allowed to join unless you know all the names, in which case you'd probably rather not in any case. As the gnat pointed out, those things don't even know they have a name. And whether you know their name or not, the bird still sings, the tree still stands. You could argue that not knowing enables you to appreciate these things more purely. 
for me, I think knowing the name of something is a mark of respect. I get annoyed with myself when I forget a person's name. So why should I treat non-humans any differently? And we are curious animals. We want to make sense of it all. It's like we're building a jigsaw of the universe and putting the name to something represents another piece slotted in. It's a jigsaw we'll never come close to finishing. But maybe one day we'll be able to stand far enough away for some of it to make some sort of sense. So I learn the names of things as well as I can, and I take pleasure in the process, even though, really, the name is just the beginning. walking along the top of the beach in the dunes really between stands of bracken and gorse and marum grass I only live a few miles from the sea but I don't come that often I think the agricultural landscapes around me just call to me more strongly but when I do come I love it and one of the things I love is the sound of seagulls. Of course, the first thing to know about them is that there's no such thing as a seagull. There are gulls, many different kinds. And I've been sitting here with my binoculars trying to identify them, and I haven't been able to do it. I am no good at gulls. And I think there are a lot of people who like nature who'd say the same. This isn't because of any anti-gull prejudice. I don't call them bin chickens or anything like that. I think they're fascinating and intelligent and beautiful. But gull taxonomy is incredibly complicated and it's getting more complicated all the time. Not only do they have, um, you know, there's a male plumage and a female plumage, they'll have juvenile plumage, as other birds do, but they'll also have first winter plumage, second winter plumage, third winter plumage. And when I say it's getting more complicated all the time, we are coming to realise through the use of DNA that what we thought previously were different forms of the same gull are actually separate species. So there are more gulls now than there used to be. So, for instance, um, we used to say herring gull. And then some time ago, the yellow leg gull was split from the herring by the use of DNA. And then the Caspian gull was split from the yellow legged. And so in that sort of, just, just that group of birds, there are between two and eight different species recognised by different bodies. So it's all under debate. And that's been very exciting for the kind of birders who like making lists because it's meant that there are more available birds to tick off. And of course, as the brilliant writer Tim D um, said in his book Landfill, which is about gulls, and it's about people too, it's brilliant. Gulls have come towards us, even as other species have begun to fade away. Since the Clean Air Act of 1956, it's become illegal to burn um, rubbish at refuse sites. And um, that led to a great influx 
of gulls from the sea because they're omnivores um, and scavengers. And so they began to move inland to sites where they could be spotted more regularly and watched more regularly. And there's been a great influx of them to cities as well. And that's caused quite a lot of conflict, as it often does when we're asked to share our spaces with nature. And it's very hard to say to people that some of these species are declining when by the evidence of our own eyes, there seem to be more and more of them all the time. There's something interesting to me in um, taxonomy when it comes to nature writing because it can seem very much as though people who write about nature are experts and they can just name everything straight off. They know what things are, whether it's a rare plant or uh, a gull that can only be identified by use of the Kodak grayscale. But I think some of that seeming expertise just comes from the process of writing. Because if I describe a walk on which I saw a bird of prey that I wasn't quite sure what it was, it's very clumsy to write. I saw a bird of prey overhead, I wasn't sure what it was. I got out my phone and opened my app and compared a few things, wasn't sure. In the end, I went home and looked it up on the internet and then checked it with a friend. You know, it doesn't make for good copy. So you do all that work, you find out what it was, and then you say, as I was crossing the field, a merlin shot overhead, silhouetted against the sky. Because that's, you know, that's a lovely bit of writing. But it obscures all of the uncertainty. And the problem with that is it leaves other people feeling as though nature's for experts. And if they see things and they aren't sure what they are, it means that they're outsiders, that they don't know what they're doing. And that's a shame. Yes, the nature writing field includes um, proper ornithologists and botanists and zoologists, but it also includes lots of people who are learning, like I am. Like lots of us are. And that's okay. Scout's very impatient. There are people fishing. And every time they cast their line, she thinks they're throwing something. And she wants to race off and see what it is. Of course, in Gilbert White's day, um, none of the taxonomic work to split different gull species had been done. Um, so people didn't know how many kinds of, there were. And in one of his diary extracts from today, July the 13th, he talks about great white seagulls. I wonder what they were. July the 13th, 1768. Truffles began to be taken for the first time in my brother Henry White's grove and will continue to be found in great abundance every fortnight till about Lady Day. July the 13th, 1769. Oxford. 
vast flocks of young wagtails on the banks of the Cherwell. July 13th, 1772. Lime blows and smells sweetly and is much frequented by bees. July the 13th, 1774. Martins hover at the mouth of their nests and feed their young without settling. July the 13th, 1778. Bestowed great waterings in the garden. July the 13th, 1779. Thermometer 79. The grass mowers complain of the heat. July the 13th, 1783, five great white seagulls flew over the village toward the forest. July the 13th, 1787, the apricots drop off in a surprising manner, planted a bed of savoys. July the 13th, 1791, my brother gathered a sieve of mushrooms. They come up in the flower borders which have been manured with dung from the old hotbeds. July the 13th, 1792. Wortleberries offered at the door. Cherries have little flavour. I've been writing a monthly nature notebook column in the Times since 2014. And in November, they'll be collected together and published by Faber as the stubborn light of things. In this column from July 2018, you can hear Scout doing what she does best. She's very well named. On walks, she's generally off ahead, investigating things. And yet, we chose her name before we had even met her. The Times Nature Notebook, July 2018. There are some animals that even zoologists struggle not to ascribe human characteristics to, and one of them is the stoat. Brimful of mischief and personality, these handsome little rascals are brave, bold and bloodthirsty, and unless you happen to be a gamekeeper, an encounter with one will most likely make your day. Scout was investigating a sandy bank riddled with rabbit burrows. As I called her away, Something half-hidden in the summer-brown grass caught my eye, moving in a way I didn't recognise. It wasn't a rabbit, a rook, a wood pigeon or a pheasant, the four most likely options. As for a squirrel, the gait, low and undulating, was similar, but the colour wasn't right. It was a stoat, and like Scout, it was investigating the warren, but unlike her, it was narrow enough to go in. A fast, deadly little predator, able to dispatch a coney four times its weight with a bite to the back of the neck and drag it great distances. Stoats are known for dancing to mesmerise their prey, and rabbits in particular can become paralysed by their antics, allowing them to approach closely enough to kill. Quietly, I brought Scout to heel and shaded my eyes, and as I did so, it mounted a molehill, stood up on its back legs and stared back at me. And so we regarded one another levelly, as equals, I couldn't help but feel. Stoats have an excellent sense of smell, but luckily I was walking into the wind. As I slowly moved closer, admiring its round ears, black button eyes and creamy chest, 
it seemed just as curious about me. At last, discretion got the better part of valour, and it popped down into a burrow, and though I waited with Scout for more than ten minutes, it didn't reappear. This week's poem is For a Journey by the poet, critic, novelist and one-time Labour councillor, Alan Brownjohn. And in the original version of this podcast, it was read for you by Radio 4's Tom Sutcliffe. For copyright reasons, I can no longer bring you that recording, but I'd urge you to get hold of Alan Brownjohn's collected poems and read it for yourself. It's about place names and field names specifically, something I became a bit obsessed with while I was writing my last novel, All Among the Barley. My fields in the book were called Long Peace, Far Peace, Crossways, Great Lay, Middle Lay, The Lottons, Greenleys, Homefield, Newlands, Broadfield, Seven Acres and The Pytel. Thank you so much for joining me. See you next week.